Hello, and welcome to Making of a Historian, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, we're going to be talking about something that is everywhere, and you probably haven't given it a ton of thought before. We're going to be talking about cotton. Don't turn the podcast off right now, it's not going to be as boring as it seems. So, before we begin to talk about the history of cotton, I just want to insist to you that cotton remains incredibly important now. Take a look around you right now. Look for something that has cotton in it. And it probably will take you a second or two. There might be cotton even up against your skin right now in this very moment. Our clothes are made of cotton. We use cotton in industrial processes. Sometimes even cotton is the first thing that touches a human being when they're born. People are wrapped and swaddled in cotton clothes. But, weirdly enough, even though cotton is absolutely everywhere, few of us have seen an actual living cotton plant. And even fewer have probably picked cotton. And even fewer have actually taken a cotton bowl and turned it into yarn and then sewn it and woven it and stuff. We are completely distant from this plant that is completely intimately close to us. And maybe then... It's a good stand-in for a modern commodity. We need it. It's absolutely everywhere. We spend a lot of our money on it, but it's also strangely invisible. And part of this strange invisibility is that consumption and production are geographically distant. Where cotton is used and where cotton is grown and where cotton is made are all different places. And so the story of how this international cotton world got created is actually one of the greatest dramas of the history of the 18th and 19th centuries. But it's not a drama with kings and politicians and celebrities and ideas. It's not like the sort of Dan Carlin hardcore history drama where you actually get people acting. This is kind of an anonymous drama with farmers and spinning jennies and plants and slavery, but it's equally as important, if not more important, than the stuff that we usually focus on. So cotton grows everywhere. There's actually four different kinds of cotton that are native to different areas. There's cotton in America, cotton in Africa, cotton in Asia, and For the longest time, there were local cotton industries where people would go grow cotton alongside other agricultural goods, and it would be made in the home or in small-scale industries. And let's just think first about what you need to do to make cotton into something usable. So first, obviously, you need to grow it. Then you need to pick it, which is incredibly labor-intensive. Then you need to get the seeds out of it. Then you need to spin it into yarn and weave the cotton into fabric and then sew and cut the cotton into whatever you're going to use it for. And sometimes you can bleach and dye it and pattern it. So before 1700, the biggest center of cotton industry was India, and India's cotton was the best in the world. Their craft producers there, the people who actually spun the cotton and wove it, were fantastic, and they made thousands of different kinds of cotton goods that were all incredibly valuable for world trade. People loved them because they were light, they were colorful, they held their color even after you washed it, and they were really, really useful. 
Indian cotton traveled to Africa, where it was traded for slaves, oftentimes who were used for war, and it was traded to Europe, and then from there to North America. The Europeans gave silver because there wasn't much that they made that was useful in the world market. But in the 18th century, India's primacy as the number one cotton growing and making place in the world would change, first slowly, and then very, very quickly. And it would change because of some of the story beats that we've been talking about before with the Industrial Revolution. But it wouldn't start with the Industrial Revolution. The beginning of our story of how this change happens has to come with law. British mercantilists, people who wanted to limit international trade so that national trade could be fostered, protected the important wool trade of Britain by setting up tariffs and restrictions on cotton imports and cotton industries, okay? So around uh, the late 17th century and early 18th century, a number of laws were passed that meant that it was harder to get cotton into Britain. And this was done not for the cotton growers and, and industry people, but for the wool trade. A knock-on effect of this is that there was a small local British industry devoted to spinning, weaving, and dyeing cotton that could exist because it was protected by tariffs. Now, once you had this, over the 18th century, something amazing happens. You get a wave of gadgets that slowly reinvents the cotton industry. At first, this is necessary because British local know-how isn't good enough to make cotton anywhere close to as good as the Indian cottons were. But over time, these become so efficient that British cotton can compete globally. Now, a lot of people will go into the actual series of inventions, K's, flying shuttle, the spinning jenny, the water frame, the mule, the power loom, but I don't want to get into that detail. I just want to tell you the pattern of this change. There was a leapfrog of improvements of different periods of cotton production. First, there would be something that made weaving more efficient. Then there would be something that made spinning more efficient. Then there'd be something that made weaving more efficient. Then there'd be something that would knit them all together. By the end of the 18th century, British cotton production was incredibly efficient, and this meant two really, really big things. The first is about how the cotton was made, and it was made in a new kind of workplace, the factory. The factory concentrates all of your laborers in one place, and it concentrates all of the raw materials, and it concentrates all of the energy that you need, and it concentrates all of the machinery you need. This is kind of how we're used to working in the modern world. There's a building that you go to every day where you work and it has the things that you need to work. But this was a new development. And it happened for a, a number of reasons to do with efficiency and control that we might get into when we talk about organizations. But who was working in these factories? Well, let's look at one of the first factories in 1784 founded by Samuel Gregg. Now, this is the first factory that had a ton of machines in it. And who worked in it? Orphans. And cotton industry for all of the 18th and 19th centuries was dominated mostly by women and children. This was because they were cheaper, 
They benefited most in the eyes of people back then from the oversight you got in factory discipline and because their small, deft hands were really good at working with machinery. The second big effect of this is that Britain had an increasing demand for cotton. Now, you can't grow cotton in Britain, even though weird people in the 18th century sure tried to grow cotton in Britain. So that means that you need to get cotton from other places. This is the beginning of that interesting thing in the modern commodity that I discussed, where things are grown, made, and consumed in different places. So, where was cotton grown? Well, cotton is incredibly labor-intensive. It's really hard to grow. You have to bend down and rip out the, the cotton bowls, and it's back-breaking, hot, sweaty, difficult labor. And that means people don't want to do it. If people don't want to do something, there's two ways that you can get them to do something. You can make it worth their while by giving them more money, or you can make them do it. Guess which one the people in the 18th century chose? Early cotton production was dominated by slaves. In the 18th century, this was being fulfilled through the lot of the Caribbean islands, which you might remember are those same Caribbean islands whose slave labor initially satisfied the demands for European sugar. But in 1791, this would change when there was a huge slave uprising in the island of St. Dominique, which is called the Haitian Revolution. It's now where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are, and this freaked everyone out. The island was like the most rich and most prosperous and most efficient of all of the Caribbean islands, and all of a sudden, it went offline. And this freaked everybody out because they looked around to all the other islands which were dominated by slave production, and they saw that 90% of the people who were living there were oppressed African slaves, and they did the math, and they realized that the system would not hold. And to explain what happens next, to explain where cotton production goes, I have to mention another one of these cool wave of gadgets. And you probably actually know about it if you're American, but you don't know the significance of it. This is Eli Whitney's cotton gin. Now, before I was actually a professional historian, I thought that cotton gin was some sort of drink made from cotton, and I thought that it was like something that, that people mentioned about the 18th century because people were always getting drunk on cotton gin. But no, the cotton gin is a machine that makes it easy to get seeds out of cotton. And this was important because American cotton was kind of shitty. The upland cotton that was easiest to grow in the South states of the US had a lot of seeds in it. And so this meant that you couldn't use it unless you could get the seeds out quickly. In 1790, when the cotton gin was invented, it opened up the southern states of the US to become major cotton producers to supply the increasing demand of cotton from Britain. And after this, there was an explosion in cotton production in the southern states of the US. New cotton plantations were made one after the other, after the other, after the other. And this also meant, of course, an increasing demand for slave labor. And things went along slimmingly for like 50 years. Slaves worked on the plantations in the U.S. to make cotton so that in Britain, free laborers who were slavering away in factories could turn that into fabric. 
Theirs was a problem, though, and that problem's another event that most Americans probably know about, and that was the Civil War. In the Civil War, the Union blockaded the Confederate states, which meant that they could no longer ship cotton. And this meant that all of the places in Britain that were getting rich from cotton production suddenly lost their main raw material. And this led to something that's called the cotton famine, where all throughout Lancashire, all the, all the places where people made money from cotton production and trading and all that, suddenly no longer had work. And this led to massive unemployment, massive hunger, massive political instability. The people of Liverpool who made their money off of slaves and cotton were so angry at the Union, so angry at the fact that Britain wasn't going to go and help the southern states. And because the price of cotton was going so high, this meant that people tried to make cotton plantations in other places. Egypt, India, and Anatolia all saw efforts for people to take what had been local craft productions of cotton and upscale them so that they could start to fill the massive need for cotton left over by the exit of the Confederate States. And after the Civil War, this led to another massive change in the geography of cotton. Slavery was no longer an acceptable way to grow cotton, and so you needed to make a new method of ensuring that people in the agricultural industries would actually work hard enough to make cotton production worthwhile. And this is really hard to do, of course, because as I mentioned, cotton picking is incredibly difficult work. So the basic pattern of how this is done in places like the US and in Egypt and in India and in Anatolia is the same, although the details are different in every place and we don't need to get into them all that much. What happened is, is that you get local workers to go into debt to the people who buy and sell cotton. This can be something like sharecropping, where you get uh, people having small amounts of land who then have to make cotton so that they can buy stuff from a central tuck shop or something like that, and they're constantly in debt. And they only work because they're constantly in debt, and they can only get out of debt by growing and selling cotton, but they can never grow and sell enough cotton to actually get out of debt. And in this, I just want to point out how this works internationally. It's all done in the name of fair play, of free trade, of these great liberal values of an open economy, the things that people mention about the 18th century of how it started to grow its economic growth. You have everything done by contracts and rule of law. You get everybody to work hard for their own well-being so that they can unlock the hidden innovation in the heart of human beings. It's all done in the name of modernization, and even though the rules of the game seemed equitable and were drafted to be equitable and were argued to be equitable, the system was rigged. Even though the rules of the game were free, the people who were making money off it were the same people who were making money off of it when it was slaves and not sharecroppers. Another big change that happened with this is with India. India used to be one of the most industrialized places in the world. In the 1700s, it was the biggest exporter of finished cotton cloth on earth, and they did a really good job at it. But as British efficiency in weaving cotton grew, 
then the Indians were locked out of that industry. And because Britain was governing India, it set up its laws so that Indian cottons and other Indian industrial goods did not do as well on the world market. India went from being a producer of manufactured goods to a producer of raw materials. And because of the way that the international trade played out, they ended up not getting a lot of the expertise and capital that went along with other kinds of industries. We mentioned the Indian railway industry a couple episodes ago. Just note that in this, even though India had more railways than anywhere else in the world, who owned the railways? The British. Who built the railways? British engineers. Who got the experience in running the railways? Not Indians, but British people who went there for short periods of time to make money. This meant that all of that stored up social capital, all that stored up know-how about how to make interesting inventions, which India was flourishing with in the 18th century, dried up until India could get its independence. Now, we can use this story of the global changes in cotton to poke holes in this received view of modernity and progress that we get. The big question throughout all of these episodes is, what makes the modern world modern? What makes the world that we live in the world that we live in? How can we use history to see the inequalities in the world that we live in now and hopefully learn from it? Well, in part, what makes the world modern is the story that you probably have in your head of good inventions, of innovation, of technology, of disruptive people like Eli Whitney or Steve Jobs making new things that change the world. But an equally important part of this story is international exploitation, systems being put in place that lock in inequality. So the epilogue to the story is something for the modern world. Right now, the cotton world that I just described still exists. Cotton is still being grown in the southern states of the US and in Anatolia and in Egypt and in India, and it's still being woven and it's still being used. But the places where it's being woven have changed. These have now gone to places like Indonesia and the Philippines. And we also now have an internationalization in the cutting and sewing of cloth as well, which didn't happen in the 19th century for the most part. Now, when I touch my beautiful cotton shirt that I buy from Uniqlo, it is not manufactured in Britain or in the US. It's manufactured in the global south in sweatshops with sewing machines. Thanks very much for listening to us today. I hope you had fun. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for giving us our music and Duncan Barton for giving us our image. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, get in touch and tell me you're out there because it's kind of lonely sometimes, and do whatever you do for the things on the internet that you like. I'll see you guys tomorrow.